Hello, and welcome to the CSAIL Alliances podcast series. My name is Steve Lewis. I'm the Assistant Director for Global Strategic Alliances at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, better known as CSAIL. In this podcast series, I will be interviewing principal researchers to find out what they're working on and how it will impact society. Today on our podcast, I will be speaking to Jacob Andreas. Jacob is the ex-consortium assistant professor at MIT in the EECS and in CSAIL. He earned his PhD degree at Berkeley, where he is a member of the Berkeley NLP group and the Berkeley AI Research Lab. He earned his master's from Cambridge, where he studied as a Churchill scholar and his BS from Columbia University. He has been the recipient of an NSF grant fellowship, a Facebook fellowship and paper awards at the NAACL and ICML. His research focuses on building intelligent systems that can communicate effectively using language and learn from human guidance. Jacob, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the focus of your research and some of your bold aspirations or goals? Broadly, my group works on natural language processing. So basically, you know, anything you want to do with a computer that has languages input or languages output, uh, we are interested in. Um, and in terms of, you know, I guess kind of broad aspirations these days, uh, I think there are really two pieces to the story. One is uh, building NLP tools, building language processing tools that work for all of the world's languages and that work especially in languages where we don't have huge amounts of labeled data. Um, you know, so right now the kind of NLP toolkit works really well uh, in languages like English and Chinese where there's been a huge amount of research effort and where there are a lot of specialized resources available already um, and not so well in, in most of the other languages that people speak in the world. And so one thing that we're really interested in um, is, uh, is doing more with less data, uh, especially with the long-term goal of making NLP work for everybody. Um, another big research aspiration that we have as a group um, is using language, sort of enabling the use of language as a general purpose tool for building machine learning systems, right? So right now, it's still the case that the main paradigm for training, you know, any kind of intelligent model, any kind of automated process is basically to collect a bunch of examples of the thing that you're trying to do and show the model a bunch of those examples and, and let it just learn from example. Um, but if you think about how you acquire a new skill, right, if you're trying to learn a new recipe, uh, learn how to bake a cake, say, you don't do this by watching a million videos of people baking cakes on YouTube. Uh, you go out and read a recipe and maybe, you know, watch one or two people baking a cake. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, a lot that we can learn about complicated tasks and about new skills in the form of language. Uh, and so a lot of what we do as a group is aimed at making language sort of available to, uh, to the rest of the machine learning world as a teaching tool, and as a training tool. So can you, can you tell us about the current state of spoken language or natural language processing? Yeah, well, so for spoken language processing, uh, Jim Glass at CSAIL is, is probably the local expert, but we're actually starting to get interested in, uh, in some speech questions these days too. Um, and I think there, the, the big thing that's happened and really the big thing that's happened in uh, natural language processing generally in the last like three, four years um, is a real 
shift to focus on uh, what's called unsupervised pre-training of models. So in fact, rather than getting a bunch of sort of labeled data for the specific tasks that you're trying to do, uh, we now have reasonably effective kind of general purpose methods that can, you know, you just give them a bunch of sort of untranscribed speech even or unlabeled text uh, and they can extract from just like big collections of text corpora, um, a lot of information about how language works and sort of what individual words look like and the relationships between individual words um, that then allows you to do um, downstream much more complicated things using relatively small amounts of, uh, of labeled data. And, you know, so coming back to what we were saying before about uh, making NLP work for low resource languages, uh, this kind of unsupervised learning, this kind of pre-training is really important there because often we still, you know, do have access to lots and lots of text or lots of lots of uh, speech. Uh, and it's just these kind of special labeled data sets that we don't have access to. You had mentioned about uh, training data and how it's how we do it today in machine learning or deep learning is we have images and we have, you know, human labelers or we might use synthetic data to to label it. So you, your concept is to use speech to label the data and to use less data to not to have 10,000 images or 100,000 images to label, you want to get it down to being able to speak in order to train the model? Right. I mean, you know, the sort of, I guess, more generally, if I have some task that I want a model to be able to accomplish, one way to specify that task is to say, here's a gajillion inputs and a gajillion outputs that sort of exhibit the specific kinds of predictions that you're supposed to be making. Um, but another way, you know, in the context of something like image classification is just to say, you know, I want you to like build me a classifier for this bird species. This bird species is characterized by having, you know, a red head and brown bars on the wings. Um, and in that sense, you know, a, a couple of words can be worth uh, a million pictures if you already have the right uh, language for describing the kinds of things that you want your model to do. I see. And why is explaining deep neural networks so hard, so difficult? Yeah, well, and, and this actually ties into another uh, sense in which we can use language as a, uh, a tool for sort of helping the rest of the machine learning ecosystem. Um, but so why is explaining deep networks hard? Well, if you think about a task like uh, machine translation, say, where I have an English sentence and I want to turn it into a Spanish sentence. Um, the most kind of naive description of how current models solve a problem like machine translation is you represent an English sentence as a list of numbers, you multiply those numbers by a bunch of other numbers, you throw away the negative numbers, you multiply them by a bunch more numbers, you throw away the negative numbers, you do this five or ten times, and what pops out at the end is a different list of numbers that happens to represent your input sentence in Spanish. And right, that's like totally opaque uh, and very, very difficult to understand as uh, a description of what this model does. It gives you very, very little insight into how machine translation is working, how it's actually possible to, um, uh, to do any of these things. Um, and I think this was actually a large part of the reason why the machine learning community sort of took so long to, or the, the mainstream part of the machine learning community at least, uh, took so long to hook into all of this uh, deep learning stuff is that it's not clear that that process is actually capable of doing machine translation at all, right? That there's enough structure in just like multiplying a bunch of numbers together to 
um, uh, to do something as complex as translation. Um, but one of the really surprising things that we've found in the last couple of years is that there is a lot of structure in that process at all, right? So if you look in the middle of uh, some sort of deep neural network that's implementing a translation model, say, you can, you know, some of these numbers that show up in the middle uh, are actually meaningful, right? That tell you whether your sentence that you're trying to translate is in the past tense or the present tense, or whether the subject of that sentence is plural or singular, or, you know, whether the sort of, uh, you know, event taking place in the sentence is an eating event or a drinking event or a running event or whatever. Um, and so the research question then becomes, how can we actually figure out uh, what parts of this computation do things that humans can understand, right? How do we identify those particular numbers in this large collection of numbers that are getting generated in the translation process um, that actually correspond to things that people have names for and that you could sort of hook onto as a way of explaining what it is that these networks are doing. Um, and so one of the sort of insights that we've had as a group in the last couple of years is that you can think of these, these lists of numbers that the models are producing as intermediate processes or intermediate products of something like a translation process, um, is that these constitute a language uh, of their own, of a kind, right? That you can think of what this neural network is doing um, as taking an English sentence and not turning it directly into a Spanish sentence, but instead taking an English sentence, turning it into a, a sort of Neuralese sentence in some kind of Neuralese language, and then translating that into Spanish. Um, and what's important there is that you can then uh, use all of the tools that we have for translation and apply them directly to that Neuralese language uh, to help us understand what's actually going on inside these models. Um, and the most surprising thing is that this actually works for tasks other than language processing tasks. So you can think of an image classifier as having its own it's sort of Neuralese language internal to the network where it's saying, you know, here are all the things that I see in the image before making a classification decision. Um, models for other, other NLP tasks as well, you know, produce the same kinds of representations. Um, and what this means is that if we want to explain even what's going on inside something like an image classifier or inside, you know, some sort of like distributed multi-agent system where the agents are communicating with each other, um, that we can explain all of these things uh, by thinking of the explanation problem as a translation problem and generating natural language descriptions of what it is that's going on inside these models. I see. And can you tell us why current machine learning techniques fall short of human abilities to learn language and to learn from language? Yeah. So there are two, I think, well, there are a lot of really remarkable things about, about human language and human language use. Um, but there are two that I think are really, really important in the context of current machine learning models. Um, one is that people are really good at understanding the meanings of sentences that involve words that they've never seen combined together before, right? So if I tell you that I'm imagining a plaid elephant sitting in a teacup, um, you have never heard all of those words together in a sentence before, but you have no problem at all forming a picture in your head of a plaid elephant sitting in a teacup. Um, and so people are really good at sort of composing words and composing meanings uh, to build new meanings that are that are really like completely novel. Um, the other thing that people are really good at is learning new words very quickly from a single exposure. Um, so if I tell you, you know, I'm about to dax once and then I go, I can't make a whistling noise, but like, whoop, um, 
you already know what DAX means uh, and you figured it out. And, and you know, if I ask you now to DAX three times, you'll know exactly what to do uh, and, and what that means. Um, and the important thing there is that for all of their current effectiveness, uh, standard, I mean, machine learning models generally, but I think neural network models most acutely just cannot do this well at all. That they need many, many, many examples to learn new words and even more examples to figure out how to use those words in contexts uh, that are different from contexts that they ever saw before. Um, and so one thing that we're spending a lot of time thinking about as a group um, and actually in a project that was sponsored by the machine learning applications programs uh, program from uh, from alliances um, is building sort of new kinds of neural language processing models uh, that maintain all of the advantages and the sort of flexibility and expressiveness of current ones, um, but that are also able to effectively do uh, this kind of few shot learning that we've been talking about uh, and also sort of compositional language understanding and understand what happens when new words get put together in new ways. That's great. Um, you, you had mentioned the machine learning applications, uh, strategic research initiatives um, that you're involved in. And we have a few other initiatives at CSAIL uh, that provide funding for this kind of leading edge research. So uh, glad to hear that you're participating in that. Can you talk a little bit about the problem of bias in machine learning models? Yeah. Um, so coming back to what we were saying before about you know, big data sets, like the models that we have now need lots of lots of data. Um, and it turns out that good data sets are very hard to create, right? And that if you're collecting, for example, a set of example sentences that you're gonna use to train some kind of NLP model, um, it's actually quite difficult to gather a set of sentences that are going to talk about, you know, all of the things that anyone in any part of society in any part of the world are gonna to wanna to talk about. Um, and it's very easy to, you know, if you set out to collect a new data set, uh, to build a data set of sentences that talk about the kinds of things that MIT graduate students uh, know about and like to talk about. And so the community spends a lot of time uh, thinking about design of models, and I think not nearly enough about the design of data sets. And, you know, one thing that I think uh, is, is generally happening, and that's really exciting to see happening, is that that focus is starting to shift, um, and especially to think about uh, things like the sort of social processes that underlie data set design and the, the, the ways in which we evaluate machine learning models and figure out whether they're safe to deploy or not. Um, and that these kinds of conversations are finally being given uh, kind of a central role in machine learning. Um, one important caveat there is that bias is not just a property of data, right? It's also like very much something that can be introduced by or amplified by uh, sort of concrete modeling decisions. Uh, I think we now have reasonably good evidence in the machine or in, in, in natural language processing in particular, that even just like some of the model architectures that uh, are best studied uh, work better in English than in other languages due to sort of particular structure, structural properties of English. And we can imagine uh, a different world where everybody's using a different class of models because English wasn't the language that we were using as the kind of main benchmark uh, for deciding what, uh, what parts of uh, the space of possible research projects is, is worth uh, exploring. But you know, even here, when we talk about issues that are really specific to model design, uh, having better data sets, having more representative data, I think will make it 
easier for us to build tools that identify these kinds of problems in, in models as well. I see. Uh, can you talk about the relationship between language and vision specifically as it relates to AI or machine learning? Yeah, so, you know, certainly it is the case that like when people learn words and when people learn language, they're learning from a lot more information than just the words that are being presented to them, right? That you're in kind of a social context, you hear other people speaking, you're aware of the things that they're interacting with. Uh, for people who can see, for children who can see, a lot of their learning of word meanings um, involves visual stimuli of, of some kind. Um, and this is something that we're really not, I think, exploiting as fully as we could be in NLP right now. And so I think one of the big open uh, open research problems is how to use information from vision uh, to help us build better models uh, just for language understanding and to sort of more efficiently learn how words mean uh, by using training data and training paradigms that really kind of put those things in, uh, in some sort of context that grounds out in the real world. Um, but this also goes both ways, right? And so like we were talking about before, um, there's a lot of information about how the world works and what objects look like and how objects interact with each other that is locked up in language. Uh, and that you know one could learn just by reading a bunch of books once you sort of have some basic understanding of how language works. Um, and so if we could get this information out of text, it would be much easier to build vision models that learn, for example, how to classify some new kinds of objects just based on their textual descriptions uh, in a way that would also allow us to build more, uh, more robust or more general vision systems. Um, and one of the cool things about this kind of embodied intelligence uh, research community that I'm in at MIT is that everybody's working on the boundaries of these problems. So we're doing a bunch of language and vision stuff. We collaborate with a bunch of vision people who do languagey kinds of problems and collaborate with, you know, roboticsy people who work on language and roboticsy kinds of problems. Um, and I think what everybody here is working towards is models that really have sort of general purpose concepts and general purpose reasoning skills that you can both learn from any kind of supervision, whether it's language or whether it's vision or whether it's action, um, and similarly apply to, to any of those kinds of problems. So let's talk about the social and ethical use of NLP. For example, how can NLP be used to combat hate speech online? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So certainly it is the case that um, one thing we can do with NLP tools is just sort of generally to help people communicate more effectively with each other, right? And so a big part of that is online communication, using NLP to do things like, like filtering hate speech, like identifying misleading news or other, you know, sort of problematic sources of information online. Um, and I think uh, it is certainly the case that the, the models that we have right now are like getting to the point where that actually seems like something that we could do um, in a way that might be effective enough to actually deploy in the wild. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that we have to make sure that these NLP tools themselves are actually being deployed in a way that is uh, ethical and conducive to good online communication. Um, hate speech is an especially interesting example uh, because there was actually there was some work from uh, the University of Washington a couple of years ago showing that standard hate speech detectors um, 
themselves have all kinds of problematic biases baked into them and that they were like more likely to classify, I think, tweets from Black Americans uh, incorrectly as being problematic and to improperly censor them. Um, and, you know, and so the important thing is just that these tools really are a double-edged sword. Um, and I think it's, there's, there's a lot of potential to do a lot of good, but this is one of the reasons that it's so kind of urgently important that we also figure out how to make these tools better at explaining themselves so that we can figure out when they're actually sort of robust enough and, and ready to deploy. I see. Um, can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with one of our alliance partners like Facebook? Yeah, so we actually just wrapped up uh, a, a really fun project with uh, with a, a research group at Facebook um, where, you know, so we've talked a lot today about language and vision and sort of using language to inform vision and, and vice versa. Another thing that we think about a lot is language and action and using language to sort of uh, help people do things in the real world or even maybe to scaffold, uh, you know, autonomous agents that can take their own actions. Um, and so one thing that we've been looking at with Facebook is video games and building models that uh, can actually more effectively play real-time strategy games. Uh, with help from language. And we've shown that if you sort of train these things, uh, not just on examples of people playing these games, but people playing these games while explaining, you know, hey, here's the high level action that I'm gonna take right now, or here's my long-term goal, uh, that you can much more efficiently and much more effectively train models to play these games. Um, and I think, you know, this is both nice uh, just from the kind of general scientific standpoint of showing that you can do this, but really concretely, maybe even for building, um, you know, better, I guess in the short term, actual, you know, better opponents and better players to play with in, in video games, but in the long term, uh, for autonomy more generally, right, for, uh, for building robots that can acquire skills quickly with help from language and things like that. I see. So what is the future of NLP? So many things. I mean, you know, so so like I was saying before, I think at least one big piece of it is uh, taking over the rest of machine learning and really being able to use language as a kind of first class tool for training models uh, and explaining models and interacting with models. Um, and then, you know, also, like we said at the beginning, I think the other piece of, of the future of NLP is uh, um, is making it available to everybody and taking the tools that we have right now that work really well in the kind of majority languages in the world and, and making them work uh, uh, for everyone and, and for all of the different uses that people want. I see. Uh, is there any other uh, research projects that you'd like to talk about that you're working on? Uh, so many things. I mean, we have, we have work going on right now on sort of using language to uh, help with programming uh, and, you know, sort of letting you build programs uh, with, with guidance from natural language, using language to sort of learn better libraries for, for solving other programming tasks in the future. Um, we have a bunch of work aimed really at just understanding, like in a really precise way, what it is that you can learn from text alone. And when we train these models on these big text corpora, um, without information from vision or without information about action, how much are they actually learning about the underlying structure of the world? Uh, anyway, uh, we have some work on using language to do image synthesis and imagine, you know, being able to, to talk to Photoshop to, uh, to change the images that you're looking at or generate new images um, and, and, and lots of other things.
Great. Well, Jacob, thank you very much for participating in this podcast. It was great to talk to you. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.